0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Chaplain Reggie Coe.
1: As we continue our study in the hills and valleys of David's life, we're going to see at the beginning of our chapter 12 of Second Samuel a valley but it's going to end on a hill. Two words kind of stand out in our culture, guilt and shame. Sometimes we don't know what the difference is. I think guilt could be defined as something that we feel when we've done something bad or wrong or sinful. We feel guilt. David obviously had sinned with Bathsheba. He'd had Uriah. The Hittite killed as Lance took us through that last week. And so what David should have felt was guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is what we feel we are as a result of our misdeeds or maybe not, even not our misdeeds, just something, some lie that we've believed about us, regardless of whether we've done something wrong. Those two attitudes or emotions tear at our hearts They lead us to cover up, to try to hide who we really are and believe things about ourselves that are not true, especially in light of who Christ has made us to be in relationship to him. It usually goes like this. First of all, we sin, we either say something or do something or have some kind of, Sinful hidden attitude, we lust or we're angry or whatever. And then what happens when we kind of realize that is we try to hide it because we don't want anybody to see that. And so we try to cover it up. We think we've hidden it until it gets exposed. And then we let that action or that behavior or that series of actions or the things we've said or did at our worst define us? Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you live with some past misdeed. Could have been this week, it could have been yesterday, it could have been in your childhood when you did something that you still kind of define yourself in light of. And the more we live, especially with that sense of shame and guilt, and refuse to own up to the Lord and to possibly others, our tendency is we live a fake life. We try to pretend that we're somebody maybe better than we are, that we're not who we think we are, but we fight against that, and we kind of create this false self. We pretend to be someone else. We tend to live in a less than genuine perspective. We fear that someday somebody will expose us. They'll expose our secret. And the question we want to ask and answer today is this. Is there freedom from guilt and shame? Does God provide freedom for that? How can we live in light of who God says who God is and who he says we are because he has some very definite perspectives about who we are that aren't defined by our past misdeeds. We continue to study the hills and valleys of David's life. Last week, Lance described for us David's sins of adultery and murder. And what followed was David's attempt to cover it all up. It's always the cover-up that ultimately gets exposed. If you can think about presidential misdeeds, either in the recent past or in the distant past, it's always the cover-up that gets them, whether it's Clinton's cover-up of his misdeeds or Nixon's cover-up of the Watergate affair or anything else, it's usually the cover-up that gets exposed, and then it's worse. Had the individual just come out and said, yeah, I was wrong, I did that, please forgive me, it might have just swept on by. But as it is, the cover-up continues to carry with it two wrong attitudes. One is, I'm getting away with it. And two, I'm a different person than you think I am. Or I'm a different person than I project myself to be. So today we're going to look at David's cover-up, where it's exposed, his eventual restoration of both him and Bathsheba. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start with the first four verses where Nathan comes and confronts David. God has led Nathan to go to David, and he wants him to expose to David David that his cover-up isn't working. Notice chapter 12, verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, "'There were two men in a certain city, "'one rich, the other poor. "'The rich man had very many flocks and herds, "'but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, "'which he had bought. "'And he brought it up, and it grew up with him "'and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, any of you that love pets, you probably know what this is. Sometimes you will feed your pet dog or cat or I don't know if you do it with your gerbil or not, but you feed them from the plate or you let them have a sip of what you have. Now, I know we have a lot of pet lovers in here. So you can understand how this man would be attached to this lamb that he went and bought and nurtured and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler, verse four, to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This rich man had wealth, he had flocks, he had herds. He could do and provide anything he wanted, but rather than providing from his own flock, he took the poor man's animal and sacrificed it for his own purposes. They say, Reggie, what's Nathan doing there? Well, John Trent came up with a phrase for this, It's called an emotional word picture. And usually, an emotional word picture is a word picture that describes a situation that the um, individual who is being told the story could emotionally connect with. Now, do you think David would have any trouble connecting to a story about a guy who had a precious lamb that he loved and nurtured? No. That's what he was before he became the shepherd king of Israel, he was a shepherd. I mean, I imagine this little lamb had a name and it ate with them and drank with them and David understood the affection that someone could have and whenever the story goes that this man, this rich man took the poor man's only lamb from him, David, it resonated with him emotionally. Look in verse 5. In verse 5 it says... Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who does, has done this deserves to die. This guy doesn't even, even, even worth life anymore. He would take some poor man's only lamb and sacrifice it for his friend. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. He needs to give four lambs back because he did this thing And because he had no pity. Now you can just sense David's righteous indignation. This man took this only lamb and used it for his selfish purposes. How dare he? Probably the most chilling verse, maybe in a lot of personal confrontations in the Bible, is verse 7. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Now, I call that a Spielberg moment. If you were doing a film, that would be the emotional connecting moment for David to be looked at in the eyes by Nathan the prophet and him to point his finger and says, you're that rich man. That's what you did with Bathsheba. You took the only thing that this man treasured and you took it for your own selfish purposes. And you even had Uriah put to death when your cover-up didn't work. David, you're the man. I don't know if there, if you've ever been confronted by someone in that manner. I can remember one time when Tom confronted me about something. I had been rude to somebody And that blabber mouth got it back to Tom. And Tom said, what's the matter with you? And I said, what do you mean, what's the matter with me? He said, well, you had this conversation with this guy down at the oil where you got your oil change and you were kind of rude. Uh Uh-oh. In other words, I was the man. So I went back to all the guys that work at that oil change place and apologized because I had been out of sorts. I hadn't been myself. That's not who I really am, but that's what I did. David, notice how he responds when he has the finger pointed at him and Nathan says, you are the man. Notice what Nathan continues to say. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have added, I would add to you as much more. In other words, David, you're the rich man. You have everything. Not Uriah. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Remember that David, I'll use a theological term, was the theocratic king of Israel. And what that means is he ruled under God's rule. He represented God. And so he despised the word of the Lord because he was to reflect the heart and character of God and how he conducted himself. Well, he didn't this time. He said, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David, there's going to be trouble in your kingdom. And even within your own family, there will be opposition. The sword will never depart. We'll see that in the story of Absalom, who was David's son, and how he continued to resist his father, and try to usurp the throne. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in light of the sun. This is fulfilled in Absalom's rebellion. He said, David, there are going to be consequences to your sin. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. When Uriah was killed, David never went into idolatry, but he went into self-centered sin. And God says, there are going to be some consequences, David. And as a result of you despising the word of the Lord and my placement of you as the king, you will have opposition from within your own family. Notice what David says Notice what David says in verse 14, verse 15, excuse me, 13. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. When we see David in his response, what we see is that he admits his sin. He admits that he has sinned against God. He he admits that he has failed to be who God wants him to be. And so as the result of that, In his confrontation, David admits his sin. Nathan spells out the consequences, and here's what we understand. David confessed his sin. We have a record of that in Psalm 51 that Lance referred to last week. I just want to highlight a couple of verses of it. If you read what we call the superscription, which is literally verse 1 in the Hebrew, It says it's the psalm that David wrote when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And this is what he says in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, there were at least two, more than that. Deception would be a third. Adultery, having Uriah murdered, covering up with deception. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, ever before me. Against you, talking to the Lord, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, you caught me. I'm caught. And I have sinned primarily against you. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin and disappoint the whole nation? Absolutely. But the primary focus of his sin as the theocratic, the God-ruling king of Israel was against God. He goes down a little further in verses 10 through 12 and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me. With a willing spirit, David confessed his sin. But the truth is, is that um, David had a different relationship than we have with the Lord. David's relationship with the Lord, the Holy Spirit's indwelling, was selective in the, under the Mosaic Covenant, and it was could be temporary. The Holy Spirit left Saul when he disobeyed God and came upon David to anoint him as king. And David didn't want to lose that special relationship with God nor his opportunity to be the king that God wanted him to be. When he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, that's not something that you and I have to pray. Sometimes we sin and we feel like we sin so badly. Oh, I've lost the Holy Spirit. No, you haven't. Ephesians chapter 1 says we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of redemption until the day that Christ comes and redeems us and takes us to be with himself. The difference between David's time and our time is whereas the Holy Spirit's indwelling was selective and temporary, when a person trusts Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in, his indwelling is permanent, and it's universal to every believer. In other words, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he will never leave. He's never going to abandon you. Even when you sin, you are not way over here and God is way over here. The Holy Spirit is with you and God says he walks with you. So how do we deal with our own sin today? 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 8, 9, and 10 say this. If we say we have no sin, Spirit of God brings something to our hearts and we say, oh, we haven't sinned. We're as pure as the driven snow. If we say we have no sin, notice the next phrase, we deceive ourselves. We're telling ourselves lies. In other words, an honest evaluation of our hearts is that we sin. Whether it was how you spoke to each other on the way to church, one of the biggest sins that happens regularly, so that the enemy can get us all scrambled up so we can't hear the word, we can't grow, can't sing the praises honestly. Anybody ever had that happen? It hadn't happened all week, and all of a sudden something happens on the way to church. We blow up. Or it could happen in other ways. We can lust like David did. We can hate like David did. Lust led him to immorality. Hate led him to murder. and It's the same thing it can lead us to. If we say we have not sinned, we're just lying to ourselves. The truth, his truth, doesn't mean we're not believers. His truth's just not operating in us because his truth will expose us and we'll admit it. Verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is not talking about the penalty of sin. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, he forgave you the penalty of your sin. You'll never experience life apart from him for eternity. You have received eternal life. This this confession deals with relational, fellowship-type sin. When we get crossways with our children or they get crossways with us, there needs to be some confession or restoration, sometimes them to us, sometimes from us to them, to restore that level of intimacy and connection. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, those sins that we know about. And that's why, as Jim indicated in his introduction, We need to ask the Spirit of God to bring to mind anything that we need to confess that maybe we didn't acknowledge earlier in the week or maybe weren't even aware of. But notice the next phrase. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What I think that is saying is is if we will confess the sins we know, the Lord will cleanse us from the ones we're not even aware of yet. Because I guarantee you, You're going to find something this week that's been latent there in your mind or memory for maybe weeks or months or maybe for a long time. Maybe how you see yourself and not seeing yourself as a son or a daughter of God but seeing yourself as this crummy sinner, how could anybody love? If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have a new identity. And maybe you're not living in light of that new identity. Well, that would be sin. If you confess that, He says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. say, well, how can that be? Anybody here, any of you ever taken a suit coat or a suit or a dress to the cleaners because at Sunday dinner, you spill some gravy, spilled a little gravy over here? Yeah. Now, surely I'm not the only one that spills gravy. And so what we do is we take our item to the cleaners and we point out the thing that we, hey, could you clean this, especially pay attention to this spot? And they say yes. Well, what we don't know is we also sat down in some blueberry pie. And we didn't even see that on the jacket or the skirt or the dress or whatever. But guess what? When they clean the spot that we're aware of, they cleanse the entire garment. When we confess the sins that we're aware of that, could, that are uh, affecting our fellowship with God, he deals with those that we're not even aware of yet. He just wants us to own up to what he's brought to our mind. If we have sinned, we confess it, and he cleanses that spot. And then the sins that we're not even aware of, he cleanses those too if we confess our sins. And to confess means agree with God. We tell him that we see sin the same way he sees it. And he, can, he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. David understood the importance of confession and he understood the importance of pleading with God to create in him a clean heart. What we can do is accept that when we confess, we're back in fellowship and our identity never changed from who we really are. Because who you really are is a new creature in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creature, a new identity, his son, his daughter. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, you're not who you were. Behold, new things have come. So what are you beating yourself up for out of your past? If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, he has forgiven and restored and given you a new identity in him. And and David gets to experience some of that. We'll see that in a few minutes. But David had these consequences that he had to experience because of his sin. Look in verses 13b and following verse 13b, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. Now what I want to say, if you've lost a little one at any time in your journey, that is not God's judgment against you. David was in a unique place. We live in a broken world where broken things happen to broken people, broken health, and sometimes there is death where we wish there was life. But it's not because God's judging you. God was giving David consequences because he was the theocratic king of Israel. You're not the theocratic king of Israel. You're his precious child whom he will walk with through the difficulty of your loss but it's not because he's punishing you or making you pay for something. Christ already paid for it at the cross. David lived before the cross. We live after the cross, and all of our sins have been forgiven for all time. He says, then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child, that Uriah's wife. It's interesting through this passage that he still hasn't mentioned her name. She's been referred to as Uriah's wife. Lance pointed that out last week in chapter 11. Uriah's wife, Uriah's wife. So the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David, therefore, sought on God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay on the ground all night. And... The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Now, I just want to say, those of you who've lost children, I cannot imagine how painful that is. I cannot imagine the hurt. I see it, but I can't imagine the the level of heartache, of depth of heartache that that brings. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do some himself some harm. They were afraid David might take his life. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Interesting response. Well, David, why'd you do that? He then went to his own house and when he was asked, they set food before him and he ate. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. Crucial understanding here. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? The answer he expects is no. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. A guy named Dr. Robert Lightner that I had in seminary had a child who was um, compromised. The child couldn't understand the truth. He wrote a book called Heaven for those who can't believe. You see, the truth is, because of the grace of God, this little one, never in a place to personally trust God, was taken care of by the grace of God. And David says, I will not bring that child. That child will not come to me, but I will go to him. Meaning David fully intended on being with that child in the presence of God. The truth is, is that God gives heaven to those who are either too young to believe or who cannot intellectually understand the basics of the gospel. They are kept in his grace. Now, you and I, if we understand the basics of the gospel, we have a responsibility to believe. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed that when Jesus died and rose again, he did that for you, then I'm asking you not just to understand that's truth, but to trust Jesus that that's true for you. That he died and rose again for you. And when you do that, he says he gives you the free gift of eternal life. David, though, has some consequences, doesn't he, in verse In chapter 12, the progression is pretty clear what David did with Bathsheba. David looked, David lusted, and David sinned. With Uriah, David conspired, Uriah did not comply, and he sent Uriah to be killed. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar says this. He sums it well for the price, for for, for the toll that sin takes. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Certainly true for David. He just thought he'd have an intimate moment. But it took him farther than he wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. This compiled and comprised a lot of time in David's life. And it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. I wonder if David would have known before he ever summoned Bathsheba if this would have cost him a child, if he would have done it. See, we can control our choices to sin what we can't control are the consequences. And he says sin will take you farther than you want to go. Make you stay longer than you want to stay. Make you pay more than you want to pay. It's very similar to what James says in James 1:14. But each person is tempted and lured when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. He looks and then he lusts and then when desire is Conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it gives, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We can't toy around with feeding the unhealthy things in our heart. They will lead us. Those unhealthy things will lead us to unhealthy choices, which will lead us to deadly consequences. David's life is a clear expression of this reality. Sin will take you farther, make you stay longer, make you pay more. And I don't know if you're here and kind of got some sin in your life that you think you're covering up. Make no mistake, God is not mocked. And what He wants you to do is come in 1 John 1, it, Lord, this is wrong. I confess my sin to You. Thank you for your forgiveness. Now, in the case of some of us, we may have to go and ask somebody else to forgive us, like I did the guys that work at the oil change place. But we at least have to bring it between us and God. David eventually did that in Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, we think that's a later psalm that expressed the reality of what it's like to be forgiven. Notice the comfort in verses 24 and 25, that David and Bathsheba felt. It says in verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. First time she's named in almost two chapters. Now she's given a personhood. Now that they've confessed their sin, she is David's wife, not Uriah's wife, now David's wife. And he went into her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. The name Solomon comes from the Hebrew word shalom. What does, that, what does shalom mean? Anybody know? Any Hebrew scholars out there? It means peace. David and Bathsheba named this child peace because, having been forgiven by God, this child was an expression of God's peace in their lives. So every time he would see little, not, sh- not, not Shalom, but sh- Solomon, akin to the word Shalom, he always remembered the peace that God gave him. But interesting what God did. And the Lord called him, the Lord lo- loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called, God called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. David's name meant beloved. Jedidiah's name is akin to David, but it has another uh, syllable that David's doesn't have. The Yah-dediah, Jedidiah, means loved by the Lord. The Lord loved Solomon and gave him as a gift to David to comfort them, though nothing could wipe away the pain of the loss of that other child, but to comfort them that he loved that child, that he loved David, and that he was um, a gift of God's love. The parents gave a name to the child related to the peace they received from God due to his forgiveness. God named the child in light of the, his love for the parents and the son who would succeed David as king. Shalom, Solomon, and Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. So let's talk about sowing and reaping. While we reap the consequences of what we sow, we're never out of the reach of the grace and love of God. There's a story that is told in the book, "Hide the Hiding Place" by. Dutch lady named Corey Tinboom. Corey Tinboom and her family lived and her dad was a watchmaker, watch repairer, and up on the fourth floor of her house was Corey's room. And they had built a false wall in her room that was so disguised that you could never realize that behind it was a closet that ran the length of the room. I've actually stood in that closet. And when the Nazis would come to try to capture these Jewish people that the Ten Booms, who were Christians, were sheltering away to send them to safety, they would run up the stairs and get in that hiding place in Cory's room. Well, the Nazis eventually found some extra coupons that convicted the Ten Boom family of sheltering Jews. They didn't find these Jews. These Jews stood silently, six in the closet, not breathing or making a sound. The Nazis, soldiers, SS, came up, looked in her room, drug her and her sister and her dad and sent them to a concentration camp. Corey and her sister Betsy lived in that concentration camp and Corey wondered why God would let that happen. They had served God and protected the apple of his eye. Why would God permit this? And in their particular cell, their cell was inflicted with fleas, which were taking their toll on Corey and Betsy. And Corey would ask, Why would God do this to us? But what they realized was that the soldiers who came around to the other women's cells to take advantage never came to theirs because they never wanted to suffer the infestation of fleas. Here's what Betsy Tinboom said to her sister that Corrie never forgot. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And maybe I have described a situation for you or you've thought of a situation in your own life where you feel like you're in the pit. What I want to say is there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. David came to understand that. First thing we understand is no matter what you've done or where you are, because of the work of Christ on your behalf and his love, you're never beyond his reach. He is with you in the pit. David wrote this, Psalm 103, written sometime after this incident. Verses 2 and 4, he said, 3 through 4, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who forgives you all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from where? From the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And then at the end, he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Has guilt or shame affected you? Are you beating yourself up because of failures of the past? His forgiveness restores. His forgiveness provides restoration so that whatever we did is not who we are. You may have committed adultery. And you need to confess that sin, but you know what? You're not an adulterer in your identity. If any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away, he says. New things have come. Maybe you're just beating yourself up for a lifetime of unhealthy choices or just one choice in the past. David had two choices that plagued him, but he came and received the restoration that God provides. There is freedom from guilt and shame because of the forgiveness of Christ.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas and we have some news to share with you as we wrap up this week. Seasons change, things come and go, and this week's broadcast has been our last on the radio with KMOC. You can hear the rest of this series and our future messages streaming live at gracechurch.com or on most major podcasting platforms. We encourage each of you to continue supporting KMOC through sponsorship and prayer as an important local ministry in our community. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening.